Hello there, welcome to Jubes and Curd, the podcast of my show on GB News. My name's Michelle Jubery, and you can catch me live every weekday evening from 6 till 7pm. But worry not, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Jubes and Curd. Well, this is Jubes and Co. We're on your TV, YouTube, digital radio and keeping me company tonight. We've got Harriet Sargent, who's a journalist and author. Alistair Donald, Associate Director of the Academy of Ideas, and Joe Phillips, the journalist. And you know the drill on Jubes and Co. It's not just about us and our thoughts. It's about you at home as well and yours. What's on your mind tonight? What are you thinking about the topics that we're going to be discussing? Is there anything that we're not discussing? And you're sitting at home going, what's going on? Why aren't you talking about this? Get in touch with me on email, gbviews at gbnews.uk, or you can tweet me at Michelle Jubes or at gbnews. And I'm sure you all already know by now that we're on YouTube. I mentioned it already. You can subscribe there. You can watch us live. You might be doing that already now, or you can watch back all of your best bits. Your best bits? I mean, our best bits, which obviously, of course, means Jubes and Co. So yes, YouTube, we're all over all the social media. Um, Snapchat, do you use Snapchat? TikTok, I hear that we're going really well on TikTok, gotta say. I think I'm a little bit too old for TikTok, but nonetheless, it seems that the kids are loving it. Uh, so there you go. Anyway, let's get to, uh, to our top story, shall we? The Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky, has said that his country must admit that it won't join NATO. He was speaking uh, to a UK-led joint uh, force via video message today. Розуміло, що Україна не є членом НАТО. Ми це розуміємо. Ми адекватні люди. Роками ми чули про нібито відкриті двері, але вже почули також, що нам туди не увійти. І це правда, і треба це визнавати. Well, yeah, I mean, we've heard a lot now, haven't we, about uh, NATO, about uh, just how important NATO or the joining of Ukraine uh, or into NATO is for both sides. And, you know, Alice, I'm going to pick up with you on this, because ultimately, you know, we're seeing all the goings on in Ukraine and it is, you know, unquestionably horrific. Every sane-minded individual now wants this to come to an end as quickly, as safely, and with as you know, little casualties as possible. I personally uh, found this conversation, these statements about uh, NATO today quite encouraging. I wonder your thoughts. Well, you say everyone wants to co- it to come to an end. I, I think that's questionable in terms of the, what you hear coming out of Ukraine itself, because there does seem still to be an appetite to fight. And I think that's important to recognise. And I, I think we in the West, where the conversation does often revolve around finding a compromise, we should actually recognise uh, that in Ukraine there is a willingness to fight and we should do everything in our power to, uh, to try to support that. Now, the reality on the ground in war is that sometimes uh, or often compromises have to be made and, and, and that would be an unfortunate thing, but a, a reality. But it doesn't mean to say that I think that we should just automatically give way and even pressurise Ukraine to to compromise, because I think as long as they're willing to fight, we should support them. Mm. But um, Joe, I found this actually, you know, it's interesting, Zelensky himself saying that peace talks are making a direct quote here, pretty good progress. And that fills me with optimism. Maybe I'm being slightly (coughs) deluded, uh, but for everybody's sake, I want this to be drawn to a close as quick as possible. Well, Yes, um, of course it's optimistic 
words and that's important to send that message to his people whether they're fleeing the country or whether they're still there and managing to hear him. I think the, the comments that he made about NATO are regretful and tinged with a bitterness and a sadness because, as he said, you know, we've always been told the door is open and it clearly isn't. And he's called upon NATO to help and NATO hasn't helped in the way that he's wanted, in other words, to impose an, a, a no-fly zone. And what he said also in this, um, this comment was, we will seek our security elsewhere. Now, that I think is much, a much more interesting thing to think about. Where is he going to seek his security? Now, as we're on air now, he's meeting with the, um, the leaders of Poland, the Czech Republic and Slovenia. Um, and he's also had that conversation with the uh, Joint Expeditionary Force. And he addressed Carl, um, Canadian yeah, parliaments yeah, exactly. there as well. So, I mean, you know, he's putting himself out there, talking to people. He's asked for help. NATO has refused to give him the help that he wants. And now he's feeling that the door is slammed. Do you think they're right to have done so? Do you think NATO are right so far to have refused the calls for a no-fly zone? Yes, I do. Because I think when you're dealing with somebody like Vladimir Putin, you, you give him the slightest excuse and we would be into World War Three. Yeah, I mean, I've got, to, I've got to say it. And I mean, this has become such a, a strange dynamic um, around this situation because... If you try and uh, say anything other than, you know, this is an awful situation, except people then start launching at you for being a Putin apologist. So I feel like I first of all, be before I make the next sentence I'm about to make, I do need to be clear. I'm not apologizing for Putin, nor am I defending the invasion. The invasion is wrong. It needs to be brought to a close pretty much immediately. It shouldn't have happened in the first place, if you ask me, but nonetheless, when you say about appeasing Putin and things like that, Joe, you know, the situation around NATO and Russia's sentiment for NATO to stop expanding to the east, this isn't new uh, to no, Putin. <laughs> this goes back for years and years and years. And I mean, the thing with NATO, let's all remember, it started with 12 countries. I'm just showing you a map up there. I mean, I've got to say, uh, and I, this is coming from me as a spectacle wearer, that is quite a, a hard graphic to see. Uh, so apologise if, apologize if you can't make it out there. But, you know, it started off with uh, 12 countries. It's now got 30. Uh, Gorbachev actually asked Washington to disband NATO. This was all about the, the Warsaw Pact, was seeking assurances that actually they wouldn't expand eastwardly. And as I just showed on the, on the graphic there, one, two, three, four, you've got at least kind of four or five expansions to the east of NATO. I'm not saying that this justifies anything, by the way, before people start messaging in and saying, what are you doing? I'm just trying to explain that it's long been known that the expansion of NATO towards Russia is a red flag, a red line to Russia. I mean, well, it's a red flag to Putin. And I think that's the difference, Michelle, because in 1997, uh, NATO and Russia together signed the, um, the founding act. We do not consider each other as adversaries. Putin's been obsessed with the expansion of NATO since the fall of the USSR. Um, so it's very much a personal beef of his. Um, it wasn't a, a beef of uh, Gorbachev. And as you say, I mean, it has expanded hugely, you know, Czech Republic, Hungary, Poland, Bulgaria, and, and so on and so forth, you know, right through the 90s and into 2004. But, you know, if you Russia signed the agreement saying that we do, don't consider each other as adversaries. Well, Putin clearly does. 
Yeah, I mean, the point I'm making, and I'm repeating myself, but I, I don't believe this is just unique to Putin. I mean, we've mentioned Gorbachev there. We're mentioning Yeltsin. He was saying, Yeltsin warned, and I'm just making sure that I get my quotes right, hence I'm reading these directly. Uh, Yeltsin warned the West that basically uh, NATO expansion was nothing but humiliation for Russia. And so it's gone on, and so it's gone on. So I do actually think that the whole NATO thing, the reason I've extracted that point amongst any others uh, that's been said and spoken about today, Harriet, is because I do think this is quite key to the whole thing. And hopefully, when I say it's a key to the thing, I mean, hopefully a key and a step towards a resolution. Well, I don't know. I mean, all I know is that Putin, unlike the other leaders you've been mentioning, Putin is very keen to resurrect the old uh, Soviet empire. I mean, that's what he's been driving him. Uh, and he's never got, got over being a minicab driver in the 90s. Um, from being a, you know, demoted from KGB official to that. And he wants to try and get Russia back to his ideas, his sort of old ideas of empire, Soviet empire. So, uh, you know, frankly, I think NATO, okay, NATO could be a problem, but it's, it's not the real issue. The real issue is Putin and his ambitions. Yeah, and um, I'll bring you back in now, sir. One of the things that I find interesting is uh, Zelensky's understandable uh, calls for the West to be doing more, to do more, which I completely understand, by the way. If I was in his position, I would be calling for exactly the same thing. But what more can we do? Well, I think we could be a little bit creative about how we uh, approach the situation. I mean, I, I, personally, I think the no-fly zone uh, is, is very difficult, but that doesn't mean to say that you can't find ways of getting arms and support to the people that are fighting in Ukraine. But we've been uh, doing that. Well, we have to some extent, but have we been doing enough? I mean, uh, there was the talk of the, the MiG fighters uh, being uh, pushed through to, to Ukrainians uh, to, to aid that fight, and... Having talked the Poli up, are we talking about the Polish ones there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And having talked that up, and as 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 the West has done quite often through this crisis, actually, it hypes things up and talks about how much support it's going to offer, and then it comes to the crunch point and it steps back, and it's it's almost like there's a there's a kind of uh, signalling of of our virtue in terms of trying to help them, but when push comes to shove, then uh, things don't quite work out like that. So I think you know we sh we could show commitment. There's there's been all sorts of talk of uh, people from around Europe and around the world going off and, and uh, going to the Ukraine and helping with that fight. I mean, perhaps we should look seriously at how we can do more of that, that in terms of issuing support. So there are ways of helping out uh, without imposing, doing something as, 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 as uh, much as a no-fly zone. I just don't think that we've thought creatively enough about it. Joe, do you think we should be doing more? Yes, I do. Um, but it's very difficult to see what we can do without risking. I mean, the, the, the thing about the Polish MiG fighters was once you start putting Polish um, planes in there, you are then beginning to bring NATO, a NATO country into the war. Um, but I think Alistair's right. I mean, I'm sure there are creative ways of doing it that you basically you sell them, you know, whether any money changes hands or not. But there must be a, a better way of getting anti-aircraft um, missiles to the Ukrainians. There must be a better way. Given that we can, you know, circumvent so many things, and I know we're going to be talking about Saudi Arabia at the mo in a moment, but, mm. you know, we sell them arms and they're using them to bomb children in Yemen. 
So, you know, we've got a fairly hypocritical attitude. Yeah, well, Ian's just written in and said, yeah, you know, well done, um, Michelle. You've got the answer. Let's give in to Putin. Um, that sounds like a great plan. That's not what I'm suggesting, um, Ian. What I would like to see is that both sides, however it is, however it looks like, um, and I'm certainly not the foreign policy expert to come up with that solution, but surely we must all be talking about... How do we bring this thing to a close now? It's all well and good talking about let's send more arms, let's send in aeroplanes, you know, like, should we do no-fly zones? The focus, surely, more than anything right now, should be on how do we fix it. And when you've got two sides that are so diametrically opposed and but clearly able to fight... But I don't think they are. I mean, I, no, think, I, the think, Ukrainian, I think the Ukrainians do want peace and they are willing to negotiate. No, what I was about to say is when you've got two sides that are so diametrically opposed in terms of what they want, surely there has to be some compromise. What Ian has just emailed in is suggesting that I'm suggesting, let's just... Roll Ukraine should roll over and yeah. give Putin there, whatever. There been, I don't think that. There has been some compromise. I mean, he, um, Zelensky's talking about uh, the fact that you know, he's, got, he's attacking NATO, which obviously is music to Putin's ears. So that's his compromise. And Putin hasn't mentioned denazification for at least two or three days now, which is denazification was code for getting rid of Zelensky. So he's not mentioned that. So he's kind of signaling he would be willing for Zelensky to go on being a, a leader there. If, I mean, obviously, and, clearly, if and, he survives. Until they take over and then they put in an, a puppet. Well, I know, but I'm just think... looking at the kind of dance that's going on and both sides have moved and I think that is significant. And plus, the other thing that I think is significant is the, the price of oil, which is always interesting, which has been $139 Whoa, a Whoa there, Harriet. Hold your horses, young lady, because that's our next topic. I'm going to cover uh, that after no, no, the break. There's a lot Russia. to say about this that. because of the Russia, because the market thinks that, the, that there is going to be a ceasefire. And it's fallen from $139 to under $100. So that's a sure sign that there is some movement on both sides. Yeah, and oh, go on, sorry, Alison. Well, I, th I think the problem with the compromise is that it threatens to be a compromise that's no use to Ukraine. Uh, and I think that's a real problem. Um, if we go in with that attitude that this is all too difficult and we can't think of how to develop uh, uh, solutions, then the, 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 the reality is that we might, or the, the compromise might be giving parts of Ukraine away or, or leaving Ukraine in a position where its sovereignty is, is um, not worth anything. It doesn't have sovereignty. But and you, I, I think we should, at, at the very, as a bottom line of this, as a really important moment in terms of the transformation of geopolitics. And uh, I think the thing that he's, he's talking about in terms of new institutions being created is very interesting because it, it seemed clear to me that the existing institutions are from a different past world and are no longer uh, particularly useful uh, in the period that we're going into. So I think what you do in this period threatens to put in place standards that are then going to become uh, the standards of the future. And I think things like uh, Ukraine having sovereignty and it being able, its people being able to express that democracy 
are, are very important and they shouldn't be compromised no, and we should find us out that ways... are putting these in place. I mean, we have no say in this mm. whatsoever. No, but it's Ukrainian I, I, I think the people who are going to decide what they will accept and well, what they kind of compromise wanted. And they it's not us at all. But they, they don't decide in a vacuum. They decide in the context of how the West approaches this situation. And if the West pulls back from supporting them and pressurises them into compromises, then we could end up in a very bad situation that sets can... dangerous precedents yeah. for these things in the future. Luckily, I don't think we've got the ability to to make them compromise. Yeah, and also, I mean, I, I did find the point you made there interesting about sovereignty when you were just saying it's all about sovereignty and for the people to be kind of, um, you know, overseeing, not overseeing, but having the sovereignty of Ukraine. That, to me, is in direct um, contradiction to Zelensky's demands for or requests for immediate entry to the EU. That, for me, for a country who wants sovereignty to simultaneously want access to a bloc that, by the way, we just voted to leave. One of the reasons we voted to leave was because we wanted to take back our sovereignty. I see a bit of a contradiction there. No, I disagree on that because I think having sovereignty means that your people have the ability to make a decision as to whether you ent enter the, into the EU. Personally, as a Brexiteer, I would uh, not encourage that at all. But the reality is that you have to have the capacity to take that decision. Well, there you go. That's our thoughts. Let me know yours. Um, yeah, you can email, actually. I mentioned, didn't I, gbviews at gbnews.uk. And when I come back from the break, I want to mention what Harriet uh, was just talking about. The whole kind of situation about oil, um, the whole conversation, this, this uh, war, this invasion has really brought home to, well, to everyone, actually, who is doing what in the world and who should we uh, be getting into bed with for a bit of a crude phrase? Who should be, who um, are we relying on for what? Uh, the reason I'm bringing all this up is because Boris Johnson is off to Saudi Arabia to talk oil. Uh, and I laugh a little bit because you genuinely couldn't make this up. You're getting away from Russia by going closer to Saudi Arabia, potentially. Goodness me. We'll have that and more coming up after the break. Hello there, welcome back to Jubes & Co with me, Michelle Jubry. We're on your TV, your YouTube and your radio. So good evening to you wherever you're watching or listening. Keeping me company tonight, we've got Harriet Sargent, who is a journalist and the author. Alistair Donald, who's the Associate Director of the Academy of Ideas. And Joe Phillips, the journalist. Now, Boris Johnson has defended his decision to fly to Saudi Arabia. He wants the Gulf state to increase production of oil and gas, which may, would make the price go down. The three-day trip comes days after the Saudi Arabian government executed 81 men. According to the Saudi state media, the group had been convicted of charges including terrorism and, get this, holding deviant beliefs. I mean, I've got to say, I dread to even think what would constitute a deviant belief in the eyes of the Saudi Arabian government. But anyway, uh, Boris Johnson said that the UK needs to avoid being blackmailed by Russian President Vladimir Putin, who he compared to a drug dealer. Uh, Boris went on to say, and these are direct quotes, Vladimir Putin over the last uh, years has been acting like a pusher, feeding an addiction in Western countries to his hydrocarbons. We need to get ourselves off that addiction. Well, that's fascinating, isn't it? But um, if I was trying to get off, say, I don't know, uh, heroin, I probably wouldn't be looking to try and get onto cocaine. I'd, try, I'd probably be trying to get myself clean. 
Have I lost you with my analogy? I know what I mean in my own head. Uh, Joe Phillips, the point I'm trying to make is, and I actually, I, I'm almost laughing when I'm reading out my own yes, intro because I just think yes, I know. you can literally quit and make this up. No. And Venezuela next stop, I expect. Yeah. I mean, it, it is utterly ridiculous, but we have long had um, a very, um, which many people, including myself, feel extremely uncomfortable about our relationship with Saudi Arabia. They buy a lot of arms from us. Uh, they use those arms to do all the things that Putin's doing in Ukraine to people in Yemen. But that's OK. Uh, you know, 81 people, as you just said, 81 men executed, beheaded, uh, many of them just for being gay. Um, we should not be having the relationship and we certainly should not be going to them with a begging bowl. Um, Boris Johnson is absolutely right. We have been dependent, far too dependent on the spoils of oils, if you like, from other countries. But if you remember back in those halcyon days when young David Cameron was photographed with a husky and wanted to go green and it was vote blue, go green. And then he said, ditch the green crap. And that's an actual quote. Um, all of those things that he introduced back then, if they had been introduced, uh, uh, if they'd been seen through, we wouldn't be in the situation that we're in now. And I know people will say, oh, hindsight's a wonderful thing. Actually, foresight's a wonderful thing. We know we're going to run out of oil because oil companies have been talking about peak oil for years. We know about climate change. We know about the dependency on um, fossil fuels. So we should have been making the attempt in the 10 years, of, the last 10 years, if we had funded the things that David Cameron said that his government was going to do and promised to do before he scrapped it, we wouldn't be in the position of Boris Johnson embarrassing us yet again going cap in hand to an appalling regime. Alistair? Well, I, I think the green crap that you, you bring up, I mean, the, the green crap in, in, in a way, the biggest green crap has been the environmental policies that have been put in place because they have undermined and, and uh, stopped us developing the type of energy supplies that we need in this country. Uh, you know, you just go through all the different sources of energy. As you say, we, we've known that uh, North Sea oil might be running out for a while, um, but we haven't put in place things like fracking arrangements, which could well have, uh, or, or could easily actually, have uh, created the type of gas supplies that would do us well into the future, not just through this tricky period, but way, way into the future, because we have enough uh, resources underneath, uh, with on land within England, uh, to be to to be able to do that. We could have developed nuclear power in a way that uh, gave us enough energy, whereas the the kind of the green tinged environmental policies that have taken against uh, nuclear power have undermined our capacity to. But do there that. are bit, so, but there are some bases. Just let Harry back by that? Russia. I mean, a lot of the anti-fracking we now discover was actually backed by Putin because he obviously thought it was, uh, you know, so dangerous for his own supplies. And whereas America has gone ahead and had fracking and is in this wonderful position of, of not being dependent on Russian gas. I think there's a danger that we start to blame everything on Putin just now. Uh, the, the reality is that uh, anti environmentalists and the policies that they've developed and have slowly been absorbed into government policy have um, been, you know, they've, they've been more than enough to stop 
uh, us developing energy policy. So I don't think at this point we should uh, really just switch it and say, well, Putin's to blame for that. I think the reality is that we've had it within our own hands to be able to deal with these things, and we haven't done it, and we've only ourselves to blame for that. And this is a point where we can start to put that right. And I think we should, you know, we're not entirely dependent on Russia for gas. We get a less than 10%. We get about, well, yeah, we get about five. I think we get a lot yeah. of our oil, for but example, gas, from Norway. Gas and oil, you know, so most of our stuff, actually, you're quite right, comes from Norway. But a lot of the, the green things, um, which isn't necessarily about um, the energy, it's about saving energy, you know, the insulation of homes. The government scrapped the schemes. So that's sort of fallen down. Um, Fracking, I think, is a non-starter. And I know what you say, Harriet, about America. America's got great swathes of empty space. Um, we've got a small island. We've got local people who do not want fracking in their area. 138 MPs um, in fracking areas have said they're against it. Um, and you just sort of think, well, who's going to do that through the planning applications and the protests and the campaigns against it? And it would take too long. And everyone, even um, Kwasi Kwarteng, a couple of weeks ago, the business secretary said, it is not economically viable to go into the and um, quadrilla. Um, it's not economically viable for them to do it in order to produce enough gas. Um, I do want to just correct you on one point, by the way. You mentioned the 138 uh, MPs. I think it's 38% of a hundred. Yeah, what it is, just, just to be clear, is there's 138 MPs in the target areas, basically, where they would be affected by this. Um, of that, only five um, of those 138 said they, they would support fracking. 41 said they would be against it. The rest didn't reply or decline to comment. So there you go. But let's speak, uh, shall we, of fracking, because uh, obviously you'll be aware by now that there was a decision to ban fracking um, and work to plug the UK's only two shale gas wells with concrete was supposed to basically start today. More than 40 MPs have urged Boris Johnson to stop the work, which is due to be completed by June this year, hence it's supposed to be starting round about now. Environmental campaigners warn that fracking is unpopular with the public, damaging to the climate and will not bring down bills. Well, joining me now to discuss this is anti-net zero campaigner Lois Perry. Uh, good evening to Hi, you, Lois. Should we be fracking? Absolutely, we should be fracking. I mean, Quadrilla, the, uh, Francis Egan has said that if the government doesn't actually put its words into action in the next few days, they're going to have to start the process of concreting the world. It's got to be done by the end of June. And, you know, the process, it takes several weeks and they'll have to start doing it straight away. But the, the thing is, whether you actually believe in this net zero stuff or not, us producing our own energy is absolutely vital. I mean, we've got the cost of living crisis. We've got, as some of your panel actually already said, you know, Putin would not be able to get away with what he's getting able, uh, getting away with at the moment if we were energy independent. And so the whole Putin thing has totally focused the mind. But I think this cost of living thing could actually become the Conservatives' poll tax moment. I really, really do. We need to frack. We need to be energy independent. Quadrilla needs to get they need to talk to the government. They need to help them sell it in. They need to talk about how they will help with local communities. Maybe they can make the, the energy that they get out cheaper for the local communities. But, you know, this is a real crisis 
and we need to do absolutely everything we can to uh, to alleviate it. You know, no more green crap. The, the time has gone for that now. It really has. Yeah, and Lois, um, you know, we talk about cost of living there and obviously Ashe concerns, as will all of our viewers. But then we're talking about fracking as a potential solution to that. But the cost of living crisis is here and now. Uh, it's imminently about to get worse. Fracking, and help me understand this if you will, I am not uh, a fracking expert, but this is not an immediate quick fix. If you start fracking today... No, sorry? Well, yeah, I mean, it can be turned around pretty quickly, actually. But I tell you what, not doing it would make the process of actually frack starting to frack um, even slower. You know, we need to be getting our oil out of the North Sea. We need to be fracking. We need to be doing absolutely everything we can to be energy independent. And it's all very well talking about insulation and all of that. How realistic? is that as a, as a long-term solution with all the different types of housing that we've got in the, this country. You know, everyone knows that we need gas. Um, uh, nuclear power is 100% the way forward, but that takes 10 to 15 years to get online. And actually, it's not very good for producing heat. It's great for electric, but not so good for heat. We need gas. Uh, renewables are nowhere near what they need to be and maybe never will be. I mean, the battery storage power just really isn't there. And, you know, Quadrilla and the government need to get their heads together and they need to stop all the mucking around. Otherwise, it, you know, it won't be the rumble of a bus equivalent tremor that we're hearing, which is what they got shut down for a couple of years ago. It will actually be the rumble of tanks because if we're not energy independent, so we are stupid, absolutely stupid. Hmm. I'm not sure that I agree that uh, if we do it, so we're going to have tanks on our lawn anytime soon. But what would you say, Lois, to people that will be watching this that perhaps live in one of the areas where fracking would be taking place uh, that would say, actually, no, we do not want that here? Well, it's interesting you say that because actually uh, my organisation, Car26, and I, we did a, a petition and we've had quite, you know, a large number of signatures in a very short time. We've got nearly 16,000 signatures. And actually, you can pull up a map of um, of where the actual people that are signing the petition are from who want fracking. And it's all in the areas where, where you know, where the wells would be. And the lady before talked about the gas. Um, you know, we can't get it out because it's not like America and the geography is wrong and everything. Actual experts from America have come over to, to the north of England and had a look and said that our reserves and our capacity is better, better than the capacity in America. And there's been 1.7 million successful fracks in America. You know, this is this is a no-brainer. This is green zealotry, and we need to stop being silly now. We really do. The men need to get their heads together, and the women, and sort this out. Okay, well, uh, Lois Perry, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Joe, um, you know, this whole net zero thing, mm -hmm. I've heard it called a slogan and not a strategy. We're talking there about, uh, you know, the, the prices. And by the way, I don't think people are even grasping how much prices are going to be going up because it is everything. Yeah, yeah. It's all the oil, it's the gas, it's the price of basic food items, your wheat, it's everything coming down the pike. And I worry about this. And I, if I was in charge of this country, and I say often it's lucky for everyone that I'm not, but I would be pausing, for example, green levies. I would be pressing pause on the whole net zero thing because I'd be saying, well, yeah, climate change, it's an issue. But for now, we've got more immediate but, pressing but ones. But we can't do that. We Why not? Because we have done it for years and years and years and put pause and oh we'll deal with it we'll deal with it and we've allowed globally exploration 
and um, literally exploitation of mineral resources and the world's resources. Exactly. So if we've done it for uh, forever and a day, what difference is another year going to make then? But it's not another year because if we don't deal with it, we're getting to the point, we know that now, we're getting to the tipping point where we can't reverse it. So once we, I mean, I just think it's such a banal and stupid argument. It's like people saying, What's oh, a banal and stupid argument? That we've got that we doesn't we don't need to worry about it now. We can deal with it later. We're talking. I about think it's a very future. sensible argument. I think well, press pause for twelve months. What's that going to do? It's going to help people. Because if what we it's had do. been, but because that's what we've been doing for donkey's years, and we should have been investing in solar and wind power and all the other things. You know, there are six hundred and thirty planning applications that still haven't gone through. They're on pause, but on solar and uh, wind power whilst we're talking about fracking. I mean, I don't know where Lois lives, but I wouldn't want fracking. I would campaign against fracking. Well, I, I lived live. in Japan where I lived through a lot stronger earthquakes than we've got here. I mean, we've got here something we that's don't even the same houses. as mixed traffic on, on, a, on a busy road, that kind of tremble. I mean, I honestly don't see why this is such an issue. I mean... Uh, well, it's not just about air tremors. People that live, or people that object to fracking will say about things like potential contamination of water supplies, yeah, for but example. But this has not happened in America. Why but is America it suddenly is a such huge, a problem here? Because we've got, we live on a tiny island and we, we are very is, built up. Alistair? I, I think we need to get out of uh, the talk of the climate emergency and, and quite sort of emotional language like that and have a bit more of a sober and realistic uh, understanding of the climate. I mean, yes, the climate is changing, but it's changing uh, relatively slowly and it's not something that we cannot deal with if we have a, a reasonably ambitious uh, approach to dealing with it. I think um, what the kind of culture of fear that we build around these things is not helpful to us being able to take stock and properly understand how it is that we need to deal with it. And I think things like fracking, um, they provide a very, very useful intermediate uh, solution to some of the problems that we face because they do bring down emissions to the extent that that, that needs to be brought down and is a problem. Um, but the, the, the discussion that surrounds things like, like fracking is always pointing out that it's a problem rather than a p potential solution to to, to the situation we're in. So the, you, you point to the, the kind of contamination arguments, the, the earthquake and, 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 and the kind of seismic impact is, a, is another uh, discussion that's very much linked with fracking. But when you look at the reality of, of the problems that it causes, it's actually actually very, very minor. In fact, it's, it's under, uh, under the levels that uh, not so normal activities, even in things like construction hub. Yeah. So I think we need to uh, kind of just to, you know, not get carried away. We need to take stock of these things, invest where we can, and I think fracking is a, is a really good thing to invest in as a point of departure for getting to a uh, probably a longer-term future where we do uh, use much more things like nuclear, which take a bit of time to bring on stream. Well, we can't kind of wring our hands about getting into bed with Putin or with Saudi Arabia, which is indeed dreadful, and then... We've, we, we, and then sort of say, no, no, we can't do fracking. At some point, we've got because to take we, some hard choices. Yes, and we should have taken those but choices. But it's no good and, saying that. But we, now, but what well, are the hard choices we're going to take right how now? How about going back to the promises that were made by David Cameron and instituting some of those? 
Like I what? Like wind what? Power give me, it provides give me 3%. Wind, I mean, we live what is on it? an island. Wave, what is 3% of our needs? It's fantastic. Wind power is amazing. Yeah, when it blurs. Yes, but when it's it works, great. And it yeah. only provides, what is the percentage? 3% of what we need at the moment? Uh, I, I'm, I don't know. I'm yes, not, well, that's I'm what it provides. So, I mean, that is just not going to really do much good right now. We have to do something. We cannot be reliant on Russia and Saudi Arabia. We have had, had that bought very strongly. But it is also strongly. about our infrastructure. It is about better public transport. It is about better housing. It is about... Um, well, I live in an old house and I actually looked into all this insulation and um, it's almost impossible. I was very keen to do it. Is, if you live in an old house in a sort of, you know, it's it's almost impossible to insulate your home. Yes, well, we're not, not everybody does live in an old house. Well, quite a lot of the country does. Yes, but not everybody does, Harriet. And lots of new builds are not up to the standard that we were promised mm. a long time ago in mm. terms of insulation. There's nothing that says everything... I thought new builds did have to be built have with to, all, to all the right to, standards. They and... have to meet a certain standard of insulation, but it's not as good as it could be. Mm. Given the rate that we build at, mm. we'll all be uh, yes, living in far older problem. houses in the future, and that's <laughs> yeah. part of the and problem. I don't know is how that you one of the reasons why we don't build enough is because we constrain, uh, put lots of constraints and limits on what we can build. So I think having a more ambitious kind of developmental mindset uh, would be a good starting point for actually achieving some of these things. Whereas just now, everything is about how we constrain ourselves because we seem uh, fearful of, of, of the fact that we, we might want to do things. But we do need to constrain ourselves. We all need to constrain, you know, the amount of energy we use every day. Well, unfortunately, to Joe, make some changes. So I take the opposite view. I think we need to produce much, much more energy. We should be producing cheaper, more as well. And, but we, uh, we do need, we've managed to change behaviour on little things like plastic bags, for instance, all of By taxing things. the backsides out of them. The only reason you've changed behaviour on plastic bags is by charging people to have them. That's right. And yes, we've constrained behaviour, all right, by making it so expensive people can't even have their heating on. Uh, Pat says, about Boris Michel, should he go to Saudi Arabia? Yes, he should. Um, Pat says, we can't be responsible for every other country and their laws. We have to find other oil supplies and how many countries are totally clean on their human rights uh, records. Not many. Get real, Michelle, says Pat. Well, there you go. Uh, we shall have a break. I will try and get real during it. When I come back, though, I want to talk to you uh, about a few different things, actually. I want to talk about shift patterns. Are you a shift worker? If you are, how much notice do you get? Um, can you plan your life, your childcare? Or do you appreciate the flexibility of short notice? And also, I want to talk to you about mental health. Apparently, 2021 saw record numbers of referrals to mental health services because, of course, uh, things like lockdown. I mean, talk about stating the obvious. Anyway, I'll see you in a couple of minutes. Hello there. Welcome back to Jubes & Co. with me, Michelle Jubry. Joining me tonight, Harriet Sargent, journalist and author, Alice Donald, Associate Director of the Academy of Ideas, and Joe Phillips, journalist. Now, research by the Real Living Wage Foundation has revealed that 10 million UK workers are given less than a week's notice when their shift patterns changed. 21% said that they've had their shifts cancelled altogether with less than a week's notice, which, of course, will affect things like childcare. As a consequence, workers faced major disruption to their lives, with the lowest paid workers the worst hit. 
The research also highlights that nine in 10 workers were not, and uh, I almost said not constipated. I don't mean constipated, I mean compensated. They are incredibly different things. Anyway, the point I was trying to make there is that nine in 10 workers were not compensated for the disruption. Should companies do more, do you think, when it comes to setting shifts? I mean, often, let's face it, the shifts reflect the needs of the business. Should they more so reflect, or certain, certainly part reflect, the workers' needs? Alistair? Um, well, I, I think there definitely should be addressed this situation because it's scandalous. Some of the, the things that you're reading out there, especially the, the kind of cancelling of shifts and not being paid for the, the work they were meant to do. I think there's a general problem here, though, which is that uh, in terms of workers securing proper terms and conditions, that's really gone backwards over the last two or three, four decades as things like trade unions have lost their influence and power and ability to set the sort of conditions that people work under. So I think uh, that combined with the fact that we do uh, run a fairly low-grade uh, poor service economy which makes these poor jobs all the more plentiful, um, I think it, both in economic terms and, and, and kind of industrial terms, uh, we, need to, we do need to address these things and they take a lot, it's going to take a lot of turning around. I'm not convinced that this initiative is the route to resolve that because I think it's far too focused uh, in terms of the living hours initiative. This is very much a kind of uh, follow on from the work life balance uh, discussion, which is more of a mental health discussion, which is more of a kind of anxiety of your, your work and life getting out of sync with, with everything else. I think uh, a more muscular uh, approach to securing proper terms and conditions is the way to resolve it. Yeah, and also, Joe, I mean, I always think my mum and sister are both nurses, um, so I've seen their shift patterns, and my, my brother actually, in fact, actually, now that I come to think of it, two of my brothers are shift workers as well. Um, and when I think about the sleep patterns, mm -hmm. the changes to your sleep, I mean, I would not be able to function yeah. full stop, I don't think, if I had to one minute work a day, the next minute work My a night. My a paramedic, you know, and he's on permanent night shift. Yeah, well, I'm asking, you see, if you're on permanent night shifts, I guess that you adjust your life then, so you well, get you used do, to it. It's the chopping and changing. Not, you know, we know it's very bad for your health to do that, and we know it's very, you know, I mean, the people who are working here on a 24-hour radio and TV station, they're all working shift work. But I think, you know, this, as Alistair says, this, this report... You're getting supportive comments in my ear when you mention <laughs> well, these guys. Well, they should, you know, but um, it's just... If, there, there are some industries where you, you, you will change. Hospitality and catering, for instance, you know, we've got no bookings or we've got a big wedding, can you do some extra shifts? That's always been the case. Mm -hmm. But this is a real problem and it's, it's a growing problem, as I think Alistair alluded to, that we've got an awful lot of people who are working but they are only just surviving. So any change when they're outgoing, so you can't say to your childminder or your nursery, oh, I don't need you for three days next week, I've just been canceled. Mm -hmm. You can if it's your mum looking after the kids, but you're, you know, you're committed to those childcare costs and everything else. So it does become a problem and that is going to add to people's mental health. Of course, Harriet. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, I totally agree. I mean, I, I, it just seems extraordinary that you're expecting people to just turn their lives upside down like that. I mean, I, you, for all the reasons that you said, I mean, for the, the childcare and also that, um, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm, I know from research I did that, that, that people who change, I mean, it's all right if you're on the, a night shift for a certain amount of time and then you change, but when you're going backwards and forwards between that night and day, um, this has a serious impact on your sleep patterns and on your mental health. 
Mm, well, Anne says, Michelle, I shouldn't be blaming uh, the companies. She says it's more than likely often going to be the agencies um, that are doing this to people. Uh, but we spoke then, didn't we, about mental health? And if you're a regular viewer to this um, programme, you will know my thoughts on the whole lockdown uh, and the whole kind of pandemic response. The reason I mention it is because figures have come out today that basically, in a nutshell, I'll cut to the point, 4.3 million referrals to mental health services last year. 4.3 million referrals, apparently. This is one of the worst uh, mental health uh, crises, whatever you want to call it. I do think we use the word crises a bit too often. But, you know, these numbers, Alistair, the problem I think we've got in society, I love the way I say Alistair and then I continue talking. I just want to get this bit off my chest and I'll shut up. We keep operating in emergency situations. So we've had, um, you know, COVID, we talk about climate emergencies, we talk about the Ukrainian emergency. We constantly seem to be at the moment in an emergency situation. And there's so much pressure to do something, do something, act now, act now, act now. The unintended consequences to some of these actions are going to be immense. All of these mental health people, or people, sorry, with mental health problems, what are we going to do about it? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, right the way throughout COVID, and as you mentioned in talking about things like the climate emergency, people are encouraged in a quite existential way to see their lives at threat. So it's not very uh, surprising um, that they start to experience that and, and to rationalise it as a problem of mental health. From, I don't think that this issue really ultimately can be resolved by throwing more resources at the NHS and employing more people to deal with mental health. I mean, some, some of it, you can, you can deal with it like that. But I think that the bigger problem is we need to find a way of um, uh, understanding and, and combating the way that we see every problem in life as, as, as a mental health problem. I mean, there's many things that have happened through the course of the pandemic, for example, where we feel anger and frustration and uh, torment at, at, at the situation. But these are, you know, reasonably normal emotions in many ways. And the fact that we're encouraged to see them in a mental health uh, as, as a mental health problem, I don't think is helpful. Well, there you go. I'm going to have to say, you two are going to have to tell me your thoughts after the programme, I'm afraid, because I've just realised the time. That's pretty much all I've got time for. Mac has been in touch saying, by the way, Michelle, shift uh, patterns, there only seem to be a problem for those who sign contracts and then spend all their time whinging about their job. I noticed, by the way, that your panel keep going on about childcare. So what, are you only interested in the female side of things? <laughs> Mac, I say this to you, my friend. Childcare is not just the responsibility of the female. I can only assume that you are a man. Good job you're not married to me with a child or else I would be absolutely making you do your fair share of the childcare too. Anyway, on that note, I'll say goodbye. Thank you very much to my panel, Sir Joe, Alistair, Harriet, and of course, thank you to you at home for your company. Any thoughts overnight, email me, gbviews at gbnews.uk. Have a good evening and I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to Jubes and Co. the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you will never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed it, leave us a nice comment. I'll see you next time. <laughs>